0: Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Friday, August 12th, and today Eric Gardner and I discuss the NFL. Don't worry, Colin Cowherd will not be here to make your ears bleed. We are talking instead about two legal dramas causing storm clouds over the upcoming NFL season. The league's push to suspend Cleveland Browns quarterback Deshaun Watson for sexual assault allegations and whether Washington Commander's owner, Dan Snyder, will face any repercussions for the myriad scandals dogging his franchise. And later, Alex Bigler sits down with Julia Alexander for another round of Feedback Friday. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode powers that are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell i sure am i sleep hot there's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm too uncomfortable and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off and while curiosity fuels our days science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights that's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. Happy Friday, everybody. I'm joined today by Puck's resident legal expert, Eric Gardner. How you doing, Eric? I'm doing great. Today, we are going to talk to you about law stuff, but we're also going to talk about the NFL and where those two worlds come together. You're an LA Rams fan, I believe. We're not here to talk about Matthew Stafford's elbow, but we are talking about the atmospherics that are going down during the NFL preseason one of the big storylines, obviously, is Deshaun Watson. The NFL had basically appointed an, an independent officer, a former judge, who handed down a six-game suspension after Deshaun Watson was accused of predatory behavior, borderline assault by like dozens of women. The NFL is appealing that six-game suspension, even though they appointed uh, this former judge. Where does this where does this go from here? I mean, it it, it feels like Goodell is responding to PR. Uh, the NFL isn't necessarily known as a progressive <laughs> league in any way. Certainly not Goodell, but he's trying to up the ante here and punish Watson even more while he's trying to, you know, become the starting quarterback for the Cleveland Browns.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, under the collective bargaining agreement that the players made with uh, the league, uh, basically Roger Goodell gets to, you know, be the king. Uh, of this. he If he wanted to, he could decide the Deshaun the Watson thing by himself. But I guess because of all the public criticism he's gotten over the years about being too conflicted, uh, he decided to appoint an arbitrator. And now that this arbitrator has ruled uh, uh, and really given a light sentence six games for you know dozens upon dozens of sexual misconduct accusations, it's being appealed to a different arbitrator that Roger Goodell also appointed. So uh, it's a pretty funny process. Uh, the uh, league has pretty much made it known that it wants to d- suspend Deshaun Watson for at least a, a season, uh, maybe even longer. And uh, I'm assuming that that might happen. And it might happen pretty quickly, considering that Deshaun Watson is scheduled to place um, some preseason games within uh, hours. And so, uh, you know, I, we'll see what happens. But I'm sure that that's just going to lead to more uh, fighting. Uh, if the uh, the appeal results in a longer suspension, I assume that the Sean Watson and the NFL Players Association will take this to federal court and and uh, try to uh, nix the suspension that way. Well,
0: that's what I was going to ask. Like, what what is Watson's best defense here against the NFL and then the Players Association? Are they worried this sets a dangerous precedent for? off the field behavior, uh,
1: you know, impacting contracts and on the field play? The truth is that he doesn't really have that much of a, a defense. Unfortunately for him, the players bargains conduct investigations with the league. And so because of the collective bargaining process, because of the Federal Arbitration Act, the players are really hamstrung when it comes to doing much about these punishments. The only thing that they can argue is that the pro- the process itself was tainted, that there was inherent bias. And so, if you if you think back a few years to when Tom Brady challenged his suspension mm-hmm. for Deflategate, that's what he was he was basically arguing. Roger Goodell, you know, decided the punishment first, didn't really like. The, the evidence, and the whole process was flawed. And that worked at the district court level. Then the Court of Appeals took another look and, and upheld uh, Roger Goodell's penalty. In this instance, Roger Goodell, on the first instance, tried to be even extra careful by appointing an independent arbitrator. But, oh. uh, you know, I, he didn't get what he wanted, and now, he, now he's appointing someone else. So that kind of leads to... These future legal uh fisticuffs that, that are going to happen and I still th- would favor the NFL ultimately prevailing over this but not without a little bit of pain does this mean that any kind of independent
0: arbitrator in the future is just now neutered like this is like he just undercut the whole idea of it and therefore why would the NFL do this in the future or anyone else agree to be an independent arbitrator
1: well I think that you know first of all if the players have a big problem with it this they should, you know in the next round of collective bargaining talks they should do, actually do something in the past they've prioritized other things like financial compensation rather than rather than these punishments um but if this is a real concern for them they should actually take it up in bargaining that being said the you know sue robinson who was the arbitrator who handed down the six games her basic thing was you know she agreed that the sean watson you know, did all this terrible stuff. The only reason that she didn't come down even stronger than six games was she said there wasn't much precedent for that and that the league hadn't really put the players on notice, you know? So the other thing that the league could do is, is they could say, you know, if players get into trouble for this sort of thing in the future, you're going to get a, you know, full season suspension. And if they did that, uh, that would aid arbitrators in, you know, coming down with these sort of penalties because then the players don't really have any legs to stand on. In this instance, the argument was even if the Sean Watson had done something wrong, how could you suspend him for as long as a a full season when no other player had ever been suspended for that long? When owners who were accused of sexual misconduct or even worse uh, were, you know, getting off scot-free. And uh, so The argument from their side really is, you know, basically it's double standards and this whole process is corrupt.
0: I want to ask about another big legal story uh, around the NFL at the moment, not as big as Deshaun Watson, uh, in part because it feels like this thing has been lingering for like years and years and years. And that is about Dan Snyder, the owner of the Washington Commanders. Uh, That's my team. You know, he's been accused of sexually assaulting an employee. The Commanders have been kind of mired in these sort of low-grade, slow-burning scandals for years now. I mean, there was an investigation into financial improprieties by the team that the attorneys general for DC and Virginia were investigating. You know, the leagues had to pay out like fines to people that like former cheerleaders have accused the team of, of sexual harassment. The question that I am asking for all Commander's fans in the DMV is, is Snyder finally going to be Uh, somehow like kicked out of the ownership here and removed from the team? Or is he just, is he here to stay no matter what?
1: Right, well, you know, I don't know. I I don't know if I could speak as a a Commanders fan because I'm not, but as speaking from, (laughs) as a a New York Knicks fan who would surely love to get rid of Dolan, these owners have a tendency of sticking around. Uh, You know, in this instance, it's not just, you know, these, you know, workplace accusations, which also remember brought down John Gruden. We're talking about congressional investigations now and, and and surely this is a huge embarrassment for the league. Anytime anyone has conflict with the league in the next, say, decade, they're going to be dredging this up. They're going to be, be looking to, you know, access documents from this case. The uh, commander's owner has fought with his minority uh, ownership too for, over control of the team. Through all this, he's just survived. And yeah. I, I really think it's just, Really, really tough to to kick an owner out of the league. Uh, you know, it takes an incredible amount of, of circumstances. I mean, the last owner I can really remember being kicked out of a professional sports league, I think, was Don and Don Sterling, Sterling, right? Yeah. Front, right from the from the Clippers. If it were to happen, I'm sure there would be a huge legal fight there. You know, but you know, the owner and the league is out to protect the the owners, and I think all the other owners would see it as as bad precedent. Uh, They might worry that if they get in trouble, they might lose their own team. So they'll they'll stand behind other owners no matter what happens. And so I I just think that there's a really difficult situation. Only way Dan Snyder can recover his
0: rep with the fan base at this point would be to somehow figure something out with the city of Washington and and build a cool new stadium where RFK was. I mean, that's like the only thing that people (laughs) would reward him for. But the city of Washington probably wouldn't do that. Anyway, Eric, thanks for uh, dabbling in sports with me. Uh, I feel like we often talk about baseball a little bit here, so it's good to talk about NFL with the season approaching.
1: Sure, and and the only uh, Commanders player that I would uh, draft is... No, i do just kidding. I'm not going to uh, offer any <laughs> <No> fantasy <one. laughs> advice here. Well, no, no, no. McLaurin <laughs> is pretty good.
0: Uh, you know, I don't know. Yes, do not come to our podcast for uh, fantasy advice until we expand into sports, uh, our sports vertical, which will happen one day, I hope. Um, all right. Thanks, Eric. Have a good weekend. Bye. You too.
2: Welcome back, everybody. It's me, Alex Bigler. And I am here today with Julia Alexander, who is the newest contributor to POC. I was super glad when Julia joined Puck. And I'm going to be very honest, Julia, it's primarily because it meant that I could slack you directly versus sending you DMs from my personal Twitter asking what you thought of like Obi-Wan (laughs) for the new and or trailer. But I am just so excited that that you're a part of Puck. And I'm so happy that you're here talking with me today. I love being here
3: talking with you.
2: So what I really think is so fascinating about Julia and your work is, you know, data can be used for good and evil. Right. Companies can use data to tell whatever story they want to tell and to obfuscate the truth if they want to. And so what you do so exquisitely is you take like a Poirot approach to data and you sift through all of the noise and all of the things that the company wants you to think to find the real story. And that's why I think you're just such a great complement to the work that Matt Bellany does and Eric Gardner does with Puck in the entertainment space. So with that, Julia, especially because you're so interested in numbers and, and data, What drew you to entertainment? How
3: did you get interested in pursuing this as a career? I don't necessarily want to give the staple answer that everyone gives, which is like, grew up watching TV and thought that was great. But I I, I do have a distinct memory of being um, in a a kind of civics class, a careers class in high school. And my guidance counselor asked me, what three jobs do you want? And I said, Jedi. And she said, that's not real. And I said, that's fair. And then I said, um, wizard. And she said, that's not real. And I said, it's fair. Then I said, surgeon, just total departure. And she said, I don't know, man. I have seen your science work. <laughs> I don't know if that's a great <laughs> that's a great move for you. But I was kind of thinking about it and I was like, oh, I just want to be a surgeon because I love Gray's anatomy. And I was like, I want to do this. And then I realized talking to some friends, and they were like, You just why don't you just get into entertainment? Why don't you go that way? And so the more time that I spent studying the world of entertainment, studying media, being in media the more I really gravitated toward numbers and data and strategy and trying to figure out like how to build the thing that that is like the most important cultural land point in our lives. Like, how does this work? How do you continue to make it work? And then the older I got, the more interested I got in finance. And so I naturally gravitated towards that end. And then data was like the cherry on top of the sundae. It was like, oh, there's all these numbers and modeling that you can do to kind of predict what might happen or to understand better why something is happening. And as someone who came from media, came from journalism, that why question is always at the forefront of, of my of my, my brain. And the data was just a way for me to sit in the why and try to pull out as much as I could from it.
2: So for what it's worth, I think I would push back on your civics teacher, because I feel like if the if the Jedi Council had like a data strategist, uh, they probably would have made a lot better decisions in a couple in a couple of moments. And I think that you'd probably be a great fit for that job. Just help Yoda out with Excel. It's like what that attack strategy doesn't make any sense. Like, let's think about this in another way. So I just like I feel like you'd crush that. Thank you. Well, speaking of finance, which you just mentioned, the Disney Earnings call was this week. If you want to know about the Disney Earnings call, you should read Julia's work and listen to other elements of the podcast that she does, because that is not what I'm going to ask her about. Julia, I wanna know you listen to a lot of earnings calls and investor calls and Many times companies are doing their best to be as dry as possible and not really bring attention to certain areas of of their company and their work. So what I want to know is, what are you listening for during these calls? Like what makes your ears prick up? What signals do you kind of pick up that maybe other people aren't picking up? Or or what do you hear that you're like, ah, that's interesting. I want to dig in a little bit more there.
3: Something that I'm really listening for is how they are approaching selling content to others versus how they're prioritizing content, how they're how they're determining which content to cipher over to Disney Plus versus Hulu. You know, I'm listening to how they're thinking about investing in localized content, whether that is to be a strong competitor against an Amazon and Netflix or whether that is to not necessarily play the local content game. You know, it's difficult to say that because certain countries by law require that there's a certain quota you have to meet in order to operate in their, in their, in their um, regions. I think like in Canada, you have to have like 30% Canadian content on your platform. It's just how it operates. Mm-hmm. And so part of Disney, like when they say we're investing in local content, part of that is we have to, like logistically, we have to do this. But, you know, how do you view having a franchise temple led strategy versus investing in local content and trying to do what Netflix is doing? So a lot of what I'm listening for is not necessarily like here is our plan for subscriber growth over the next two, three years. What I'm listening for is here is the amount that we're investing in content. Here's where we think the strongest value for that content lies, either either whether it's a theatrical title, because we still think that theatrical is a great way to kick franchises. We are going to take short-term hits on licensing content to other streamers, because we think that our value is on our own platform, which is different than what Warner Brothers Discovery is kind of doing a little bit. Um, So I'm really listening for those those key signals that are going to absolutely change how people are watching what they're watching. How do those changes, first and foremost, affect the bottom and top line um, revenue for Disney? But two... How is this changing the way that someone in a household who has streaming services thinks about the value of those streaming services to them? If somebody's only subscribed to Netflix for Daredevil, do they then cancel Netflix and give Disney that stronger market share on the streaming side? Because Mm -hmm. that's the one show that they really want to watch, which makes that show more valuable than almost, you know, than a bunch of other shows combined because of what that customer acquisition ability is for that title.
2: Well, I've got one kind of final question for you, which is, the business side of Puck and you're at Puck, we think you're just like a great addition for our subscribers. And we are so thrilled that you're a part of our journey now. Um, But I wanted to ask, what drew you to Puck? Like, why did you decide to align your personal brand um, with us and, and write exclusively for Puck?
3: I think the mentality of organization, over individual in terms of trust from readers and excitement from readers has started has dwindled away over the last you know decade, especially over the last few years and what we could arguably define as the Substack era. And the, the reason that happened was because the economics of journalism changed. And so what big publications had to do in order to, to survive and thrive was rely on, on, on ad revenue, which is totally fine. And then try to introduce subscriptions and it got really complicated and it got messy. And I think that also eroded a little bit of, if not trust, I think excitement from readers. And when Punk launched, it was like this old school magazine mentality of like, we have talent who you trust as a reporter, who you like to read because they're entertaining, who feel like a friend, like you almost developed this parasocial relationship with them. And that was something that was really interesting to me. And when I joined, I joined because of, of Matt, who, like, I remember the first time I met, met Melanie and I was like, I watch your Hollywood Reporter executive roundtables like once a week. And I was like quoting them at him. And I think he was very concerned and I was like, oh, my God, who is this person that we're working on? But like I, you know, Matt was just in my eyes, like the bee's knees, like he was the guy. And then and Dylan, of course, who I read a bunch then I, you know, got introduced to other writers. It was like Tara and Julia and it was Bill and, and it was, you know, Bill during Elon. I was like refreshing, waiting for him to, to write about stuff. And it was that moment where I was like, not only do they have this trust, but I feel this connection and this, um, this, this established adoration for Puck writers and then Puck as a whole, but really those writers. And I thought that was the most interesting part of media as media kind of almost leans into creator economics you know, we see the journalists follow. And I think Puck really leaned into that. It was the ability to, one, be on the slack with these writers who I really respect. But two, it was like the idea that this feels like how a certain part of media, not the future of media, I mean, there's scalable websites, but how a future of media that I was really interested in was going to go. And so I thought I wanted to be there for it, be a part of it.
2: You don't need to hear Alex Bigler say the value of the Puck bundle because you just heard Julia (laughs) Alexander say it. So Julia, thank you so much for talking with me today. Stay tuned for Julia and Alex live tweeting the and or premiere in September.
3: (laughs) I mean, I love that idea. Thank you. I will come back whenever. Happily. Excellent.
0: thanks so much for listening to another episode of the powers that be as a reminder the powers that be is the official podcast of puck we'd like to thank ben landy liz goff and alex bigler for their editorial and production guidance if you like what you hear on this podcast please share with a friend it really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only puck can offer you can visit us at puck.news and on twitter at puck news i'm peter hamby see you next week